Hello, welcome back to our humble podcast. It's Christmas Day. Yeah, that is slightly strange, isn't it? It is, and it's stranger still that it's actually not Christmas Day where we are no, no. <laughs> in time. <laughs> Love you though I do. We record in advance. Of course. Um, however, it is feeling very festive in our uh, podcast studio. Yes, entirely <laughs> deserted, complete building with just us in it, I think, today. Yeah, otherwise yeah. known as our office. Yeah. Um, uh, so we've got some very festive twinkly lights that Tom has adorned our mic stands with. Um, and uh, it's probably fair to say that we're feeling pretty tired. Yes. <laughs> so if this is even more rambly than our usual Christmas episode, then we apologise in advance. But hopefully you are sat somewhere cosy listening to this. Um, and whether you do or don't celebrate Christmas, hopefully you are enjoying a well-earned break. Yes. And as usual, we've got a collection of goodies for you, random goodies that we've got from all sorts of places. And because it's Christmas, we've got absolutely loads of them. So this is probably going to go on for several days. We've got six each, haven't we? Making, I don't know, what, the 12 days of Christmas or something? I don't know. Yeah. 12 just seemed the right number, didn't it? It did. That was the original conception, wasn't it? Last year, we were kind of like, yes, mm. let's, let's, you know, in let's our enthusiasm, 12, yeah. let's have 12. <laughs> and then like an hour and a half later, we were still going, yeah. <laughs> so we'll try and be as uh, succinct as we can. Yeah. But um, yeah, it, it's a Christmas episode. So it's, it tends to be a bit more free and loose than usual. But hopefully, that will be enjoyable yes so we've got uh, all kinds of media uh, to bring you not just the usual blogs tweets and stories we've got music we've got an academic paper we've got a twitter account i don't know what you've got yet oh it's a surprise it's, it's a christmas surprise. day you don't know until you open it tom all right well who's opening a present first then shall i go first yeah go on then okay so we'll start with something uh, a little bit heavier um and then we'll uh descend into chaos yep. as we go through the episode so um i'm starting out with a piece that i don't know why i didn't read earlier on the podcast but i think actually it's probably just as relevant right now so this was something that was published back on the 1st of may um, of 2020 um it's a think piece by Professor Barry Carpenter um, of Oxford Brooks and Matthew Carpenter, Principal at Baxter College, Kidderminster. You may have come across it actually um, since May and it's called A Recovery Curriculum, Loss and Life for Our Children in Schools Post-Pandemic. And it was written in the middle of the first lockdown, so towards the end of the first lockdown, um, where many schools uh, remained open and teachers were still teaching, but much of that teaching was going on online. And it was mostly uh, the children of key workers who were attending school in person. However, it really did cause a stir this think piece Um, and I would imagine that a lot of schools that started back in September who have been experiencing you know multiple challenges with with year groups uh, having to isolate multiple times members of staff you know it's been it's been a real a real challenge for teachers and anyone working um, in the education sector um, but it struck me that as we stand on the brink at this moment in time when we're recording a, another Welsh lockdown um, that was announced yesterday um, and as unfortunately cases continue to rise you know we're, we're not out the other side of this pandemic just yet so I think 
I'm going to just read a a little bit from uh, this piece because it might be something that listeners might want to follow up on because there's now um, additional material that has sort of come out of the interest and the warm reception to this think piece such as podcasts, webinars, etc. So get to the point Thea. Um, I'm just going to read you an extract from this piece. Teaching is a relationship-based profession that has been clearly demonstrated in the response of the teaching profession, supporting children through online teaching during the crisis, and also caring for the children of key workers by keeping schools open and offering an activities programme. This was not without its inherent risk. In response to the weight loss our young people will have experienced, what are our levers of recovery? Many of us will focus on the recovery of lost knowledge, but this does not recognise the scale of impact. If we consider the definition of a relevant curriculum as the daily lived experience, we must plan for experiences that provide the space for recovery. Already head teachers are saying the children will be so far behind academically when they return. Such statements are incompatible with the process of recovery from loss, trauma, anxiety and grief. It is more about the results culture so many head teachers are steeped in. Now is the time to return to a more humane approach, concerned with the fundamental well-being and secure positive development of the child. Without this, there will be no results that have true meaning and deep personal value to the child in terms of their preparation for adulthood. Lever one, relationships. We can't expect our students to return joyfully and many of the relationships that were thriving may need to be invested in and restored. We need to plan for this to happen, not assume that it will. Reach out to greet them. Use the relationships we build to cushion the discomfort of returning. Lever two, community. We must recognise that curriculum will have been based in the community for a long period of time. We need to listen to what has happened in this time, understand the needs of our community and engage them in the transitioning of learning back into school. Lever three, transparent curriculum. All of our students will feel like they have lost time in learning and we must show them how we are addressing these gaps, consulting and co-constructing with our students to heal this sense of loss. Lever four, metacognition. In different environments, students will have, have been learning in different ways. It is vital that we make the skills for learning in a school environment explicit to our students to reskill and rebuild their confidence as learners. Lever five, space, to be to rediscover self and to find their voice on learning in this issue. It is only natural that we all work at an incredible pace to make sure this group of learners are not disadvantaged against their peers, providing opportunity and exploration alongside the intensity of our expectations. We suggest the recovery curriculum is built on the five levers as a systematic relationship-based approach to reigniting the flame of learning in each child. Many children will return to school disengaged. School may seem irrelevant after a long period of isolation, living with a background of silent fear, always wondering if the day will come when the silence breaks and your life is changed forever. Our quest, our mission as educators, should be to journey with with that child through a process of re-engagement which leads them back to their rightful status as a fully engaged, authentic learner. The loss the children experienced during this pandemic will have caused issues around attachment in their relationships in school that they they have forged over years. These will be some of the strongest relationships the young people have, 
but bereft of the investment of those daily interactions, will have become fragile. Our unwritten relationships curriculum must restore the damage of neglect. It must be a curriculum of recovery. Now is the time to address the damage of loss and trauma so that it does not rob our children of their lifelong opportunities. Now is the time to ensure that we restore mental wealth in our children so that their aspirations for their future can be a vision that becomes one day a reality. So, um, obviously, I would imagine a lot of schools took heed of this, um, knowingly or unknowingly, uh, back in September. But it struck me that, you know, there could be multiple occasions where we're having to go back to these levers and reconsider um, what our role is as educators um, in helping pupils recover um, from the trauma that they will have experienced uh, throughout this pandemic. As I said, we're we're not through it yet. But it also struck me that a bit closer to home for Tom and I, Student teachers are also going to need some time um, and support in in recovering from what they've experienced because we're training teachers in the middle of a pandemic too, teachers who will eventually become newly qualified teachers who may have had very different experiences from one another, um, from school to school, depending on their school placements. and maybe starting new jobs in September 2021, feeling quite nervous, um, uh, maybe about the lack of, of physical classroom experience they may have had in that year. So I think this resonated not only um, in terms of the work that we do with our pupils in school, but that we also uh, extend the notion of a recovery curriculum to our student teachers and NQTs out there too. Wonderful. Yeah, that was a lovely quote. Um, I've not got anything as serious as that coming up afterwards. It was a lovely serious present for me. Um, I have got something a little bit more uh, substantial in it, but I have, I'm going to I'm going to do my usual now. <clears throat> bring us something completely random. Oh, I'm excited. Um, Go for I'm, it. <laughs> I'm going to attempt. <laughs> I'm going to attempt to condense the content of two published academic papers now uh, somehow. Now. Many of us will know in teaching that we are trying to move towards becoming a sort of research-informed, evidence-based, master's-level, highly academic profession. You know, we call our school experience placements here on our programme clinical practice. You know, we talk about research-informed clinical practice. We talk about clinical reasoning. You can't get away from the sort of medical overtones of that that kind of um, phrase. And... Of course, this sort of idea of going for research informed, you know, that can sometimes be a little bit caricatured. People are not always necessarily completely convinced that it's it's great. You know, they, they think that perhaps that means we get to exclude the common sense of, you know, long experience in the classroom and all that kind of thing, which clearly we don't. Um, so I just thought I'd bring you two articles from the British Medical Journal, which... <laughs> which kind of uh, illustrate the point that's being made here because of course course the medical profession has had a lot longer at being um, you know evidence-based and and research informed and all that kind of thing that we have so they have had time frankly to um, completely satirize it uh, and have loads of fun with it so (laughs) so perhaps there is a connection here we can just take a cautionary moment as we as we listen to me attempt to praise these two academic papers um, so that we don't go sort of 
too far into a kind of crazy world where where we only do things if they are informed by research-based evidence so here we go this is the the first article was published in uh 2000 and uh 2003 Yep, that's it. I had the wrong one in front of me. The first one was published in 2003 um, and it's entitled Parachute Use to Prevent Death and Major Trauma Related to Gravitational Challenge. Systematic Review of Randomised Controlled chi- uh, Trials. <laughs> and what they say in their introduction is this. The parachute is used in recreational voluntary sector and military settings to reduce the risk of orthopaedic head and soft tissue inju- injury after gravitational challenge, typically in the context of jumping from an aircraft. The perception that parachutes are a successful intervention is based largely on anecdotal evidence. Observational data have found their uses associated with morbidity and mortality due to both failure of the intervention and other complications. In addition, natural history studies of freefall indicate that failure to take or deploy a parachute does not inevitably result in an adverse outcome. We therefore undertook a systematic literature review of randomised controlled trials of parachutes. So, <laughs> so off they go and they sort of describe their methods methods of their literature search all very seriously and then their results is a single sentence it says our search strategy did not find any randomized controlled trials of the parachute so off they go in their discussion then they say well it's often said that doctors are interfering monsters obsessed with disease and power who will not be satisfied until they control every aspect of our lives it might be argued that the pressure exerted on individuals to use parachutes is yet another example of a natural life enhancing experience being turned into a situation of fear and dependency the widespread use of the parachute may just be another example of doctors obsession with disease prevention and their misplaced belief in unproved technology to provide effective protection against occasional adverse events and they go on to then say we only have two options the first is that we accept that under exceptional circumstances common sense might be applied when considering the potential risks and benefits of interventions the second is that we continue our quest for the holy grail of exclusively evidence-based interventions and preclude parachute use outside the context of a properly conducted trial. The dependency we've created in our population may make recruitment of the unenlightened masses to such a trial difficult. If so, we feel assured that those who advocate evidence-based medicine and criticise use of interventions that lack an evidence base will not hesitate to demonstrate their commitment by volunteering for a double-blind, randomised, placebo-controlled <laughs> crossover a trial (laughs) at which point in 2018 they then came back with another article parachute use to prevent death and major trauma when jumping from aircraft randomized controlled trial (laughs) so can't wait for this one can you (laughs) who do they use (laughs) this is this is what we will find out so this is this is a fantastic article i really enjoyed reading this um they have actually conducted a randomised control trial. The objective to determine if using a parachute prevents death or major traumatic injury when jumping from an aircraft. And off they go, you know, explaining all their study protocol. You know, they, they found people sitting in aeroplanes and they sort of asked them whether they were willing to jump off the aeroplane, you know, with something on their back, which may be a parachute or might be an empty backpack. Oh and, my God, uh, <laughs> how did they get ethical approval for this? <laughs> well... Unfortunately, it's quite a quite a long paper, but you can see I've got a little little diagram there where they can show the people getting screened out and all that kind of thing. So um, we find the results here. Parachute use did not significantly reduce death or major industry injury. Interesting, you think? Well, so <laughs> then you actually go into their their kind of details of their study and you you read all the things that they did. Um, 
And what you find out is that basically they were they were finding people seated on an aircraft. And when you dig into the actual detail, the only people who agreed to be enrolled on the trial, uh, all the people that were sitting on a jet liner 30,000 feet above the ground refused. And all the people that were sitting in a light aircraft 0.6 metres off the ground, as I'm showing you a picture <laughs> from the uh, article, agreed to take part. And so uh, we have all these kind of wonderful little bits where they they sort of put this all in statistical language. Um, They point out that um, the participants in the study, the ones who actually took part, were similar to those screened but not enrolled with regard to most demographic and clinical characteristics. However... Participants were less likely to be on a jetliner and instead were on a biplane or helicopter, 0% versus 100%, were at a lower mean altitude, 0.6 metres versus 9,146 metres, <laughs> Funny that. and were travelling at a slower velocity, 0 kilometres an hour versus 800 kilometres an hour. <laughs> so then they say, we have performed the first randomised clinical trial evaluating the efficacy of parachutes for preventing death or major traumatic industry, uh, injury. Our groundbreaking study found no statistically significant difference in the primary outcome between the treatment and control arms. <laughs> Our findings should give momentary pause to experts who advocate for routine use of parachutes for jumps from aircraft in recreation or military settings. Should our results be reproduced in future studies, the end of routine parachute use during jumps from aircraft could save the global economy billions of dollars spent annually to prevent injuries related to gravitational challenge. <laughs> oh my goodness. So it's that loads of wonderful. fun. But they are making quite a serious point there that we yeah. have to be very, very careful when we read the headline results of an academic study. And we also, I think, probably need to have a little bit of pause and consider whether perhaps uh, common sense might be the right way forward when considering an intervention, whether we are a doctor or whether we're a teacher. Totally agree. What's the educational equivalent to a parachute then? <laughs> there we go. Right in answers on a postcard. Wonderful. Really enjoyed that. Fantastic. Okay. Wonderful. I don't know how I'm going to follow that. <laughs> You've kind of stunned me there. Stunned you, yeah. That is an excellent contribution. It's a good paper. It's worth reading the whole lot, actually. It's very, very funny. I, I mean, how did you even stumble across these? Do you know, I stumbled across it months ago and I intended to use it in a light episode and then promptly forgot. I, I've been meaning to bring it to one of our light episodes for, oh, I don't know, the best part of a year now and I just keep forgetting. So oh, well, it was well worth the wait. That was cracking. Okay. Um, so I cannot take the credit for this one. Tom helped me with my homework. (laughs) Um, I was lacking a sixth entry and a text arrived a couple of days ago um, with a link to a website called Windowswap. Um, Now, I kind of don't want to give away the the absolute glee and, and surprise that I well I experienced when I clicked on this maybe I need to get out more no, but it's who can right now isn't it? it's very <laughs> strangely addictive, addictive. Yeah. so window swap window swap lets you watch a stranger's view and it's incredibly calming now that's the title of an article by Rachel Moss in the Huffington Post um, so I should probably give you some details about it. I'm frantically trying to uh, find out how there we go. So project titled Window Swap was created by Sonali Ranjit and her husband Vashnav. I, I cannot. <laughs> I'm really sorry, but I, I'm not even drunk. <laughs> we haven't even been drinking. I, I can't pronounce that name. 
I won't attempt it, um, but have a look. <laughs> You'll find the creators, two advertising creatives based in Singapore. And the basic premise is that you go onto the website and you click um, a link which says open a new window somewhere in the world. And people have signed up to share their windows and it's just a static camera focused out of somebody's window. I'm, I'm just clicked on it now and I've got somebody's pond in Kansas City, USA. Um, this is Amy's window. The other day I wasted 15 minutes watching somebody's cat on a windowsill in Kentucky. Um, and you can just continue to click open a new window somewhere in the world. I've just clicked it again. I'm in St. Petersburg, Russia. Um, and there's just traffic going by, uh, you know, and it's really... <laughs> it's, it's a great anecdote to the inability to... Uh, anecdote, antidote to the inability to travel. It is. Moment, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, it really is. And it's just lovely to see, you know, what the weather's doing. Some, oh, I've got someone's cat. There's an incredible <laughs> amount of cats. I'm there's in an Berlin. animal. We've lost her. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's so addictive. It <laughs> is incredibly calming. And as Tom says when we are all locked down and, and and it's very very difficult to travel right now you can take yourself off to uh, it's a hell of a lot in Russia Northampton yeah. um, MA uh, what's that Massachusetts, Massachusetts yeah. USA oh it looks lovely there <laughs> so yeah give that a go and you've also got the because there are, there's another version where I think there are, uh, there's kind of music played over the top but this version is just the ambient noise um, from that that window onto someone's world which I'm is just, just lovely uh, looking out of our window now thinking Nope. <laughs> yeah. It's not going to work. There's a, there's a roof right in the way. There's some lovely mountains, but you can't see them over the roof. No, I'm definitely <sighs> contemplating doing it onto, onto my garden. You yeah. can see what my dog monkey gets up to <laughs> day to day. Oh. So thanks for that, Tom. You helped <clears throat> me on that one. very welcome. I've got a Twitter account later on that is very, uh, very topical and to do with uh, COVID lockdowns, but I will bring that a little bit later. I'm going to bring you a book quote now. Um, this is uh, slightly more serious than my last one, I suppose. And this mm -hmm. this comes from a book that I've talked to you about before, but I haven't mentioned on the podcast. Okay. Uh, it's a book that I, I particularly enjoy reading and actually, again, is a really nice antidote to having a really rubbish year, I, I would say. Yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's a book by an author called Adrian Bell. Now, he was the father of, for, for people of a certain age, he was the father of the BBC reporter Martin Bell. He was also uh, the first Times crossword setter. Uh, so he had an interesting Ooh. and varied life. But uh, the, probably the most interesting thing about him, the thing he's really known for, is that in 1920, at the age of 20, um, his father basically decided he was a sort of, um, you know, callow, sickly waste of space, basically living in a, you know, lovely bohemian Chelsea or somewhere like that, you know, and he was going to go out and make a living and get a job. Um, and he sent him to the depths of rural East Anglia to learn how to be a farmer. <laughs> Uh, and uh, he was also a, an excellent writer, as it turned out. And that was actually what he, he en ended up having this sort of double career as a, as a writer and a kind of a ruralist. And, and he wrote about what he did. And he's, he wrote this book, uh, which came out in the, in the late 30s, about the year that he had when he arrived in the depths of rural East Anglia in 1920 to be apprenticed to this really experienced um, farmer to learn how to work on the land and all that kind of thing. Mm. And it's just this wonderful book that's a kind of elegy for that 
that sort of pastoral England between the world wars that, you know, is sort of deeply rooted in a lot of the English psyche, you know, and it's, it's kind of a bit of a bit of a national hang up, I suppose, that whole kind of pastoral thing. And mm. it's written so beautifully. And apparently that it was published in the late 30s and loads of soldiers who went abroad in World War Two took copies of this book with them because it kind of reminded them of home and all that kind of thing. Um, it's beautifully written. I've, I've got this lovely quote because, again, it makes me think of education a little bit because, of course, he had an education in farming, which is very vocational mm. education. And, you know, there's this endless debate, isn't there, about the academic versus the vocational. And it's very easy sometimes to perhaps be a little bit patronising about the vocational. Um, you know, it, it always kind of struggles to to get kind of equal status with those academic things that people do in school. And I thought this was a really kind of apt quote related to that. So what's going on here is he's in his first year as, as a farmer. You know, he's still a bit of a, a useless kind of clueless, clueless city boy. And he's trying to plough this field. Um, and you know he finds it really hard because you know it all goes wrong all the time you know he turns the thing over or does the corners wrong and doesn't do straight lines all that kind of thing um, and he, he he has this quote here where he's talking about it he's just crashed his plough and uh, <laughs> he says this I remembered then a poem of Hardy's only a man harrowing clods in a slow, silent walk with an old horse that stumbles and nods half asleep as they stalk. Only thin smoke without flame from the heaps of couch grass. But this will go onward the same, though dynasties pass. I had become that traditional figure. Apt as these meditations were, they were not good for harrowing, for while my mind had wandered, so had my horse. Half asleep or not, it had left an ever-widening portion unharrowed, and I had to pull it back sharply to the true course. Then I found a fault in the poem, in the light of my new experience. Only a man harrowing. Why the, belittle why the belittlement of that word only? Had Hardy ever done any harrowing, he would have not written a stanza suggesting that man and horse alike were half asleep and vacant, that they just walked on and on, no matter how or where. He would have found, as I found, that despite appearances, one's mind is kept fully occupied seeing that none of the work is missed, that one does not overturn the harrows, that none of them is clogged or caught up in one another. Stumble, yes, but that has nothing to do with drowsiness but the unevenness of the ground. In fact, one has to be particularly nimble-footed to keep one's balance. Hardy, I saw, despite the legend of his rural understanding, had the non-ruralist's attitude, that of one who'd not gone to the heart of the matter, the attitude of only only a man harrowing, only a man ploughing, only a man guiding a manure cart through a gate. And if the stranger tried, he would overturn the harrows, knock down the gatepost and smash the plough. The labourer, with the respect born of knowledge, does not regard these affairs as semi-automatic, given in, as it were, with the landscape, but has an eye to the manner of the job. Yeah. <laughs> yes <laughs> I was just checking that was the end because I'm reading this off my phone and it's very very small but yeah it's it's just quite an interesting point there isn't it it's very very easy to be a bit dismissive of mm. these things a little bit patronizing these things and, and he's kind of making the point even the great Thomas Hardy you know that famous writer of English rural fiction was perhaps a little bit guilty of that from time to time and we should all have a little bit more respect for those vocational uh, activities that some people are so good at and some people really bad at yeah totally agree um, and they're, they're often so good that you can't see the hard work that's sitting underneath and, you know, the complexities of what's going on um, underneath something that looks 
pretty mundane maybe yeah. to a, an, a, a, an unknowing eye or an mm, ex- inexperienced or eye. A knowledge worker, should we say. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness me. Well, I enjoyed that. Um, and I enjoyed a bit of Hardy in there as well. Mm. That was enjoyable. Even though he was having a go at him. <laughs> Even though he was having a go at him. But uh, yeah, fair game, actually. Mm-hmm. Should be able to have a go at uh, these literary giants. <laughs> okay, um, so I've got a podcast recommendation for you now. Um, so I'm going from the kind of sublime um, pastoral England um, and uh, going to take you to America, to uh, to Dolly Parton's world. <laughs> okay. um, I don't know whether this is going to be a bit of a, a curveball, but uh, a friend of mine who... A taste I value um, very highly, who often makes very good recommendations, recommended that I listen to Dolly Parton's America, um, which is uh, a production by WY, sorry, WNYC Studios, and it is hosted by Jad Abunrad. Um, and I'm just going to read you the blurb on this before I give you some more details of why I'm enjoying it. So it says, in this intensely divided moment, one of the few things everyone seems, everyone still seems to agree on is Dolly Parton. But why? That simple question leads to a deeply personal, historical and musical rethinking of one of America's great icons. Um, it's a very short series. I think it's about nine episodes. It's, it's not long at all. But the the first episode, um, entitled Sad Ass Songs, (laughs) gives you a flavour of why Jad Abumrad decided that he needed to explore Dolly Parton's America um, and why so many people seem to love her. Um, He said that he had this really otherworldly, or he, he noticed other people, audience members, having an otherworldly experience um, when attending a Dolly Parton concert back in the backdrop of the 2016 election uh, result, which, as we know, was uh, a diabolical time in American history. Um, But he noticed that how diverse the audience was. Um, She draws this incredibly diverse audience, people whose philosophies, you know, are completely sort of diametrically opposed and widely differed. Um, But he dug a bit deeper and he found that there's this this data point called a global Q score. Have you ever heard of this, Tom? No, I haven't. So it's basically um, a score of how people feel about your brand. Um, So it crunches a load of data and it it pulls together kind of a cross-section uh, of society in, in, in terms of its response and its 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 population of, of responses. Um, and it's a measure of both familiarity and positivity. And not only does Dolly Parton score within the top 10 um, of global favourites as a brand, she's almost number one for lack of negative. So the lack of negative things people have to say about her. Um, so he obviously wanted to kind of get into the depths of why Dolly Parton kind of stands for this sort of great unifier um, in America in particular. But the first episode is incredible because it starts out looking at kind of the the history behind some of her song lyrics and how she really wasn't recognised um, for the fantastic songwriter that she actually is. She was speaking of, um, you know, particularly the female experience growing up um, 
in southern uh, America, not South America, in southern Southern America. I can't remember which. Is she Nashville? I can't remember. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, just just a really interesting look at Dolly Parton's work, at her relationships and how people respond to her. Um, yeah, and I would highly recommend it. It's just something a bit different. I'm thoroughly enjoying it. I wonder what our Q score is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting one to have a look at. Go and go yeah. Google Q score. <laughs> people, people with no negative uh, thoughts about them. That's an interesting one, isn't it? It was funny, actually, because uh, he mentioned that oh, it, it, um, she's second, perhaps, <laughs> only to Adele, who oh, okay. at, at the time when he recorded that probably, you know, people didn't have a lot of negative things to say about her there and then of course she did that awful thing where she she dressed herself up for carnival and she made an incredible faux pas Um, and i think it uh, maybe damaged her score (laughs) q score has dropped is it her q score has maybe dropped sorry adele um but dolly she's she's still right up there (laughs) right up there there with the podcast yeah (laughs) in our dreams (laughs) yeah Brilliant. Okay, Um, I've got a Twitter account for you. You might enjoy this one. This is also related to the uh, fun and games that we've all experienced since uh, COVID-19 became a big part of our lives. Um, And it's related to the fact that we're all doing so much of our business uh, on a screen now. We're all on our Zoom calls uh, or our Teams calls or whatever they may be. You know, people are appearing on interviews on telly uh, from their houses rather than in the studio and that kind of thing. And so this Twitter account has sprung up called rate my skype room (laughs) (laughs) which is doing i think what we all tend to do subconsciously or perhaps slightly more consciously which is have a look at other people's skype or or teams or zoom backgrounds and kind of see what we make of them and they give these wonderfully kind of concise uh, ratings and then a score out of 10 and then a screenshot they're obviously kind of looking at these uh, on news programs on the telly and things like that um so i'm just going to give you a couple of examples uh, we've got this one here i mean i don't know who any of these people are because it's quite america focused so they're all kind of quite big figures being in interviewed on american news programs but still it's it's all quite universal this one says well balanced art camera angle win reindeer turn on lamp add more light and you're there eight out of ten <laughs> this one says a decent multi-row bookshelf view although in this case we'd like to know where his hands are raise camera nostril violation six out of ten <laughs> and then uh, my final my final offering from this i'm having to scroll down quite a long way there we go one of the more unkind hostage videos we've seen blink twice for help zero out of ten <laughs> Oh, that is wonderful. Oh, I'm definitely going to go. Remind me again, what's it called? Rate my Skype room. And Rate I believe they're also my... now where they've got some kind of thing going on where they've <laughs> they've made T-shirts for people that score 10 out of 10. <laughs> oh, wonderful. And this becomes such a cult thing that quite a lot of these big, um, big kind of political and, and medical figures in America are actually having a back and forth with the Twitter account. They see their feedback and then they improve their room and get rescored. <laughs> oh, that is cracking. It reminds me a little bit of um, maybe one of our avid listeners, Rian Mulligan, will be able to remind me. There's one about bookshelves. Have you seen that one? Oh, yeah. There's lots of people talking about people doing pretentious things with their bookshelves, aren't there? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And just kind of brilliant descriptions um, of of people's bookshelves similar to that (laughs) to the ilk of those tweets brilliant (laughs) oh that's wonderful thank you for that okay um so i um haven't had a huge amount of time to watch uh, a lot of telly but i am um a fan of the box set 
Uh, I do like immersing myself in a TV box set. Um, And I think 2020, despite the absolute tragedy that is what's going on in the arts more generally, particularly with theatres, which is incredibly close to home for me, um, I've seen a lot of really beautiful live stream theatre and I'm really pleased that some theatres are managing to... Uh, bring in some audience members virtually um, in this current climate. In fact, on that front, it's worth giving a shout out to um, the old Vic, who've done really well at uh, doing some live streams. I've attended lots of those, but also to some of our, our Welsh theatres as well, um, who are doing the best they can to uh, to keep themselves going, such as the Sherman, the Wells Millennium Centre, and all of our smaller theatre companies. We wish you well. Just a bit of a diversion there, but come on, the arts, we can do this. <laughs> yeah. Um, But I'm going to talk about, very quickly, three dramas that I have loved this year that have made a real impact on me that and, and, and probably you've already seen so maybe maybe they won't be helpful but maybe if you haven't seen them then you've got a box set to uh, to snuggle up to um, on the sofa for the remainder of the holidays. So my first one um, is a, from a writer that I know Tom you really admire it's um, the writer is Jesse Armstrong who I think was one of the writers on The Thick of It <laughs> yeah. which I, I know you're a fan of. Yes. Um, um, and the series is Sky Atlantic's Succession. Which you keep telling me to watch and I haven't watched yet. Oh, you have to watch it. It is incredible. So I'm just going to take a couple of little bits from um, a review, a five-star Guardian review. This is from Tim Dowling. I really liked this review. And it says, The closest parallel um, for Succession is probably fictional. Logan, who is the main character, the head of uh, of the family, um, this kind of centres uh, on a really high achieving, top notch uh, family in New York. Um, oh, gosh, I've forgotten the name of the family. That's terrible, now, isn't it? Hang and on, I haven't watched it, so I can't them. help you. Sorry. I know it's terrible. <laughs> the Roys, of course, Roy's. Logan okay. Roy, um, who is the he's a self made founder of media giant Waystar Royco, and um, they say that it's maybe been modelled on on the Trump empire, on the Murdoch family. Um, But um, this review says the closest parallel is probably fictional. Logan is a modern day King Lear, clearly bent on dividing not his kingdom, but his children one against the other. So all of the children are kind of fighting between themselves um, over who will be the successor. Um, and the, without giving too much away, the the, the, sea, the first season kicks off with Logan Roy having um, a heart attack um, and uh, sort of being this, the, bringing the question of the successor, uh, you know, closer in people's minds and, and everything's hanging in the balance. It's just beautifully written, um, and I really agree with this perspective from this review. It says it can it can be hard to care about characters who are all slightly different shades of awful, but Succession works brilliantly because it provides you everything you hope is true about a mega rich family dynasty, the witless cruelty of the entitled, the emotional inadequacy of grown up children of privilege, the complex interplay of Machiavellian scheming and simple hurt feelings. Um, I absolutely love it. It's, it's, it's there are whole two seasons of it. Um, I think I think it's two seasons. Oh, is it one? I can't remember. Oh gosh, it's terrible, isn't it? I watched it a while ago. Um, but um, yeah, it, it's it doesn't disappoint. The acting is is superb. The the writing is wonderful. Um, and yeah, the characters are 
awful but you just love them <laughs> <laughs> i think that's the thing i liked about watching the thick of it actually is you start off by by thinking that all the characters are various shades of awful and then over time you come to realize it's actually the the machine of the british political system that that makes them like that that yes. means they have no choice but to be like that and it's far more subtle than than it appears at first it's really cleverly done yeah and that's it it's the subtlety the nuances of the performances that that really got me um in fact so much so that i had to have a zoom call with um two people two of my close friends who had seen it just so that we could dissect it and uh, and and be complete complete fan people <laughs> of yeah. of this of this lovely drama so that's sky atlantic that's succession um, yeah, it's definitely in a second. It's got two seasons, um, and I think they've started filming the third, um, but obviously COVID's put the kibosh on that a little bit. Um, the other one, my other recommendation of three, is Normal People, um, which is an adaptation um, of Sally Rooney's novel. Um, and it is, it could be sort of... Um, disregarded as sort of young adult fiction, um, but as... Uh, Lucy Mangan the Guardian reviewer says of this it's there's there's far more to it it's it's certainly about um adolescence um but it takes it seriously um without treating it indulgently um and it's just beautifully uh, acted it centers on um the two main characters Marianne and Connell who uh meet in sixth form um in Ireland and it just follows their relationship the kind of the fallings in and out of this relationship and this this incredible bond that they've got between one another it's got a cracking soundtrack but the bit that I agree with the most is what I've just mentioned is the way that it, it doesn't treat that adolescent love experience as one that is you know without worth without true feeling without meaning um it doesn't treat it flippantly it gives it all of the the time space and, and energy that it deserves um and i've got to say the the performances the two protagonists paul mescal um and daisy i think it's daisy edgar um are just they'll they'll be they'll be BAFTA winning I'm sure Daisy Edgar Jones and Paul Mescal so give that a watch I've actually watched it twice I loved it so much um and my final recommendation is a Netflix series which didn't get as great a review so the other two got five stars um in The Guardian um and this one uh reviewed again by Lucy Mangan in The Guardian only got three out of five stars which I thoroughly disagree with um this is The Queen's Gambit uh, Netflix piece um, and this is a very uh, short series uh, about uh, a woman who rises from discovering uh, the game of chess in an orphanage um, who reaches the kind of pinnacle of the chess world. Um, it is just stunning it's it, it kind of spans the 50s and 60s america it's it's absolutely beautiful to look at again beautifully acted um uh, and yeah just just a lovely a lovely story but also some great characters um so it looks at a really nice relationship between beth the kind of key character who's rising in this chess world and her um adopted mother um so without giving too much away it just it's just a nice portrayal of a of a of, of a female relationship um that isn't about sort of rivalry that's about about love and respect um and companionship but yeah far more to it than that 
I thoroughly enjoyed it and it just looks wonderful as well. So those are my three recommendations. I was pledged to keep everybody locked down at home there. Yeah, plenty. <laughs> yeah. Probably good. Okay, um, on to me now. Now, this is, <clears throat> this is the one that potentially might crash and burn for reasons of uh, outrageous self-indulgence on my part. So strap in and prepare for something that that may may fly or may crash horrifically into the ground so okay <laughs> so you well you know and probably a lot of the listeners know that i am a musician you know i run the pgc music program here at cardiff met and you know prior to being a teacher and, and parallel with being a teacher i've been a professional musician as well and thinking back to how i actually ended up being a musician and the kind of musician that i am i mean I, like many people i started learning the piano when I was really small you know I learned various things when I was really small um a slightly odd thing happened when I was five or six which was that I moved to a little town called Chepstow which is right on the border between Wales and England you may or may not know it our lovely colleague Sally Bethel lives there and um without being too mean to the place there's not a whole lot going on down there quite a lot of the time uh, but in a weird kind of stroke of luck I suppose right at the end of the road that I lived on when I was sort of five or six when I, I moved to this town um, was a really big church a uh, big old kind of 900 year old Norman church and I joined the choir in that church not because I was particularly into going to church but I guess there wasn't very much going on back in those days so I had to go and do something with my time and weirdly and even for that time it was it was a little bit of a a kind of oddity this church in this small town had like a full-on proper cathedral style choir of about 25 people and did two rehearsals a week and did the music every Sunday morning and so off I toddled age six and I look back on it now I think oh what was I doing like age six just wandered off and joined this choir and it meant that from the age of six without really knowing any difference I learnt and performed a piece of like proper full-on choral music every single week of the year at least one and you know it was everything from kind of quite modern relatively cheesy stuff I guess to like really heavy kind of 16th and 17th century stuff you know big old Victorian Anglican church music things and I didn't really get you know what was what I just took it all as music took it all on all on board learnt how to sing it performed it moved on didn't really think any more about it and actually, that was the best grounding in being a professional musician I could possibly have had because, you know, it's all very well kind of practicing and practicing and putting on a concert a year kind of thing. But when you're a professional musician, particularly in the UK, you don't get any rehearsal time. You just go, you do the concert, you, you leave, you move on. <laughs> and from the age of six, that's what I was doing. I was actually getting paid for it. You know, I was paid 50p for my first uh, <laughs> professional a whole 50p hey, that could get you quite a bit back then yeah i was about to say that was still considered a bit rubbish even <laughs> when i was six <laughs> singing in the choir at somebody's wedding was my first professional gig and i was paid the princely sum of 50p wow yeah, i, I didn't know that that's a fact i didn't know about <laughs> you a random fact yeah but what this is all kind of coming towards is i discovered in the back of a cupboard the other day um, that, and, and reminded me that when I was sort of six years old and I joined this choir shortly afterwards, for some reason that I have no idea why it actually happened, they decided to make a recording of all the stuff that they did as a sort of record of what the choir sounded like. So I discovered in the back of a, a cupboard the other day this tape. <gasps> Sorry, kids, you'll have to go and look that up, what a tape is. Uh, <laughs> 
of this choir, including a six-year-old me, which you can't make out, luckily. Um, oh, I was going to say, is it a solo? No. No, no, I did oh. do a lot of, uh, I was like Mr. Mr. Alan Jones style boy treble for a very long time, but not when I was six, more when I was kind of like nine or ten. I used to do loads of that. But no, I'm in there somewhere. And so it's kind of, it was kind of a weird experience to put this tape in and actually it barely works anymore. You can, you know, you'll hear, I'm going to play a little bit of it now just to be massively self-indulgent. Um, a little bit of clicking and popping on the on the tracks, um, but yeah, this is this is the first kind of music thing that I did, aged sort of six, going on seven, uh, and this is the the church choir of this small town on the border of Wales and England um, recording one of the one of the pieces that we used to sing, learn and sing every every week. So here we go.
lovely. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, that, that was um, with a voice of singing by the English composer Martin Shaw, and that was St. Mary's Parish Church Choir. The conductor was Graham Bull, who I gather is still conducting amateur choirs down in Chepstow to this day. Um, the organist was John Marsden. And from that kind of sprung so many things because I ended up as an organist. I, I ended up studying the organ with, you know, a world famous uh, scholar of the organ later on in my life. I became an accompanist. Uh, I I trained as a singer uh, and I ended up, I was immersed in all this kind of four-part harmony kind of choral writing from the age of six, just not knowing any any different really, kind of fearlessly sight reading all this stuff every week. Mm. And my first teaching job was as a lecturer of four-part harmony pastiche. So there wow. we go. It all came from there. So yeah, massively self-indulgent, but somewhere in that recording is me, age six, um, just fearlessly singing away. Oh, wonderful. I really crave that sort of music around this time of year as well. We've spoken about this before, right? You know, when I'm kind of peeling spuds ready for the <laughs> yes. uh, Christmas dinner, it's uh, it's nice to have some lovely kind of choral music going on in the background like yeah. that. Yeah, and they weren't bad, you know, considering that was just a small town choir and, you know, and they used to knock this stuff out every single week, week in, week out. And so I just, the volume of stuff that I learnt um, in sort of 10 years there that I was in that choir was just phenomenal i've pretty much got everything to thank them for so good on it's all gone now no no choir there anymore as long as i as far as i know well without getting too deep um you know (laughs) it it does say a lot about some of the things that mary myatt says about challenge about you know if you if you make that level of challenge the norm that you know a child will will go with it like like you did you know didn't question it it was your norm yeah i mean there was there was sort of cheesy stuff like john rutter but i've looked at the tape listing you know there was mozart there was henry purcell are all the kind of great big names and i just sort of saw them all as fair game really because you don't really know any better so yeah there we go so maybe maybe something to be said in these covid times about kind of grassroots amateur art and what they can do for young people as well you know outside the formal schooling system totally agree Right, I've got something that links to that a bit later on as my last entry. But before Mm. I get to that... It's time for our big joint present, isn't it? Yeah, we've got some news, haven't we, Tom? Yes, you can go first with your half of the news, if you like. Okay, (laughs) so we have been considering this for a little bit of time, but um, we decided to kind of take the plunge. And we're going to do a bit of a (laughs) rebrand. Yeah, we're not not going off for solo careers just before... (laughs) No, no, I'm not. No, no one's, no one's leaving the band. Nope. <laughs> Creative differences. No, you're stuck with us for a bit longer. Yeah, no, we're st- you're stuck with us for for a bit longer. But we have decided that we are going to change the stock image that we have been <laughs> stuck with yes. uh, since we started. That I just groped around and just grabbed at <clears throat> when we started this podcast. So yeah. that uh, that image that you may or may not be familiar with of the teach blocks. Mm. Um, that I got all excited about actually because it came up as an image somewhere else uh, in uh, in my inbox the other day and I was like oh gosh it's the podcast but yeah, clearly no, it's a stock it image yeah, yeah other people use it too so we've decided that we're going to uh, change our kind of logo so there will be a brand shiny new uh, logo for the podcast and we've also decided that we are going to uh, change our name 
Um, I don't know whether we're going to reveal that just yet, but we, um, we'll, we'll maybe decide that as we go through. But we, we are going to reveal that we're having this new rebrand. And I'm really pleased to say that we've been working uh, with a local Cardiff-based and Cardiff-born artist who has always currently in the process of designing our lovely new logo. Her name is Beth Blanford. Um, she goes by the artist name of Bland Doodles, Bland Doodles, um, and she is um, followable on Instagram uh, and Facebook if you just type in Bland Doodles. Um, and I'm just going to read you just a tiny little bit um, of uh, from her webpage. Bland Doodles was born out of a dire need to explore, express and process concepts that were too large to tackle at once, to break them down, find humour and warmth in them and try my best to come to terms with questions being just as important as answers. So she works um, with a range of mediums from life drawing to charcoal to her most common digital illustration practice. And it's that digital illustration that we've asked her to produce for us for our lovely podcast. So look at Bland Doodles. She's been doing some cracking work. Um, she also featured, her work featured on uh, the Welsh version of Match of the Day very recently. So um, she's making a stir um, in Cardiff uh, and Wales more broadly, and I'm sure beyond too. So look her up um, and look forward to the unveiling of our new artwork in the new year. Yes, we also took the potentially thorny decision to have a little look at our music and, and see what we could do about that. And for that, we cast our net far wide, a huge distance to about three doors down the corridor where resides our colleague um, Cameron Stewart, who, who's done some work for us on the music. So we're just going to pause a minute to have a, li- have a little chat. We, we recorded a little chat with Cameron about the work that he did uh, remixing the podcast music. So let's hear from Cameron now. So I'm chatting to Cameron Stewart and Cameron in your sort of normal day job world you're the program leader for PGC secondary maths that's right. Yeah correct I started at Cardiff Met Um, I've been there just about a year now so. And you're a bit of a dark horse Cameron (laughs) because we've been working with you uh, gosh how long have we been working with you now when did you say you started? I think I started a year ago. It's it only been a year. In the nicest possible sense, it feels longer. <laughs> You're part of the furniture now, Cameron. <laughs> but um, you know, we went all all that almost a year really without finding out that you've got some secret hidden. Well, from my perspective, secretly hidden musical talents that I think you ought to fess up about to all and sundry now. <laughs> Tell us about your musical past. Yeah, man, music's been a huge part of my life since sort of day one, really. I, I've sort of played in bands over the years and and got interested in kind of recording bands and recording music. The band I currently play in, we're in our 20th anniversary year, which is which is nice, but equally a shame because we haven't played a gig this year um, because of COVID, which is a shame. So sort of a, from a live performance perspective, that uh, done lots of kind of recording, uh, as I said, with, with bands. And back about 10 years ago, I did a master's in uh, music production and technology, which was really great. And around about the same time, I was kind of working in the studio doing some recording with uh, the band and just got chatting to one of the producers who happened to be working on the Fime and Sam series at the time. And I think they were trying to get Kelly Jones from the Stereophonics to do it. And obviously he was just far too cool for it. So I think probably <laughs> said no. And I kind of just got roped in into a session to to do it, sung it once, I think, maybe twice, um, and then and then forgot about it. And then obviously they, they picked it up back in 2008-9 so I've kind of been that, that voice of the Feynman Sam theme tune for for those few years which has been great particularly if you go on YouTube and see all the comments from people who prefer the original version which is a, 
which is great. You have to, you know. I've got to take say, it with Cameron, a pinch of salt. <laughs> my jaw did drop when I found out that you were the voice of the Fireman Sam theme tune. And now that you tell me the story <laughs> of it, like it having possibly have been Kelly, I just think, gosh, his stuff is so morose. We would have had a very different uh, <laughs> intro <laughs> to Fireman oh, Sam. Oh yeah. I- I, I strongly suggest have a look at the YouTube comments. They're absolutely brilliant. They're just from people in their 30s, 40s who sort of reminisce of the original Malpope version. Um, I mean, it, it's still got sort of eight and a half million views or, or whatever on there. But um, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a cool story, you know. On, on the back of that, I, I got a lot of work doing sort of radio jingles. So I, I do lots of um, uh, writing and recording of voiceovers and, and singovers and stuff for um, commercial radio now, really, um, while, while keeping the band going. So quite a claim to fame and so uh, when we knew that we were going to have a little bit of a refresh of the uh, now slightly elderly title music and uh, artwork we came to you for that I mean we should probably confess at this point that when we were thinking about creating a podcast I just sort of we recorded some stuff and then I put it into an episode and just chucked a few apple loops at the beginning of it to say to Emma like there'll be some music here and then you know the way these things they just sort of stuck and they've just stayed there for what's it been now two and a half years or something like that so (laughs) it was time for a remix but actually when when I spoke to Emma about it she's really attached to those apple loops now and didn't want (laughs) didn't want them to go so we've set you this kind of really cheeky task of could you do something with my random and slightly rubbish selection of apple loops and make it sound good and I promise you, so, Cameron. So Emma's I, basically. Sorry, go on, Emma, go I was on, just saying, you you're, so you're, you're basically one of those people on YouTube yeah. that are reminiscing about the, <laughs> that's what I was gonna the original. Say. Oh, that's what I was going to say. I was going to say, I promise you, I won't be one of those Malpope enthusiasts who's like, it's not like the original. I want the Apple Loop back. <laughs> I think I was quite sort of mindful of that because, I mean, even it doesn't matter sort of how, you know, how ideas are born, does it? I mean, people do grow quite attached to them and I think when I was putting this together I, I sort of had a few email correspondences with Tom and I didn't want to pull it apart because I wanted it to kind of remain the essence of, of the original track and for me it was that baseline which I thought that's that just has to stay you know that was probably where I put most of my work really was because that baseline is obviously an audio track so I, I needed to I wanted to kind of freshen up that bass sound so I need to first of all map that audio on, onto MIDI um, which took a little bit of time actually and then once it was mapped onto MIDI I you know I, I had a bit of creative freedom to kind of um, pick some samples and pick pick some sounds that I liked. And what I've actually done, I don't know whether you can hear it in the original, um, in the remix, I've actually kept the original bass track there, but I've just kind of brought it down a bit in the mix and sort of blended the two together. It was one of the main kind of stipulations that I made to Tom, actually, that if you messed with that bass line too much, I might be a bit <laughs> upset. I, I, I'm really, really accustomed to that bass line. I like it a lot. <laughs> yeah, it's cool. I mean, I... My my first listen, I think I said this to you. I I thought the um the structure was very similar to M- to Mr. Brightside by the Killers. So I was sort of um, resisted the temptation to sort of get my um get my Les Paul out and and, and stick some riffs over it really. But <laughs> we've done a cracking job with it. Um, and we the only thing we're worried about is that it maybe sounds a bit too fresh and too hip for for us <laughs> to. But uh, we'll, we'll let the no. listeners decide that. <laughs> There's going to be comments. There's going to be comments. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, here we go. It's going to be the second Fireman Sam thing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, a huge, huge thank you to you for doing that. I mean, we're, we're keeping the relaunch under wraps a little bit until the new year. Uh, so anyone that wants to hear this fantastic remix is going to have to wait until, I think it's January the 8th or something like that, the first one comes out. So, uh, yeah, but thank you so much for that. And also, while we were making cheeky requests, we've actually got you on as a guest, haven't we? We're recording with you after Christmas. 
Yeah, that's my other guys. So I'm going to be talking a little bit about some research I've done on looking at gender and the impact of gender on performance and attainment in mathematics. Oh, and what a great juicy topic that will be. And I, I think we need another episode down the line about uh, crossover between maths and music. That's begging to be uh, to be talked about. Absolutely, so. yeah. I think, I think we can focus on fractions and crotches and quavers. We can get that conversation going. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> Listen, Cameron, it's been great having you on. Thank you so much for refreshing our... <laughs> standard cardboard cutout jingle and turning it into something cool um no and we wish you all the best for a, a very restful christmas break yeah thanks and you too thanks for inviting me on so we hope you enjoy that when it lands uh after after this christmas break and um we've just ta- reached a mutual decision whilst listening to to cameron again there um and we've decided we're going to reveal the name i think we should probably tell you the reason why we wanted to change the name and i think it's the name change that was the most important thing we we actually realized that we reach a hell of a lot of people with our little podcast now and we feel and people have told us it's not just what we feel that it's not just pgce uh, students who are listening to our podcast it's actually teachers uh, from the profession more broadly um, in international locations too so we felt that whilst Emma and Tom's PGCE podcast was helping us quite a lot because type in PGCE and we're the first one that comes up we wanted to recognize and acknowledge that we have listenership that extends beyond PGCE Yes. So we, we did have that feedback as well, didn't we? People are, people are having to push our podcast in front of people because they think it's not for them. So, yeah, we've decided to call ourselves Emma and Tom Talk Teaching, which was a suggestion we, we came up with a while ago. And we decided we, we didn't hate for long enough that we were actually going to adopt it. So, yes, we're going to become Emma and Tom Talk Teaching. The feed will be changing over the new year period. I'll try and keep, you know, the artist formerly known as PGC Podcast or something in the title, so you can still find us for a bit. But uh, then we will fully <laughs> yeah, we're, regenerate. We're not, we're not changing our name to a symbol or nope, anything like that. No, we will fully regenerate Doctor Who style into this new new thing with this this new artwork and new music, which is not too different from the old music because Cameron's clearly been burnt by that experience of being the new voice <laughs> of Five and Salmon. <laughs> so <laughs> he decided to be reasonably conservative about the remix. But we hope you enjoy it. We do, we do. So you've got another Christmas present to look forward to. Uh, in the new year okay so we've reached the last of our six presents under the tree now tom uh, and i think i'm gonna be the penultimate uh your sixth and then mine i'm gonna go with my sixth then over to you um this is another shameless plug i'm afraid um I, as I've maybe explained on this podcast in the past, I can't remember, uh, I belong to a lovely amateur theatre group called the Lisvane Players, uh, who are based in North Cardiff. Um, I've been part of them since, uh, a bit like Tom mentions, probably since I was a, a dut, <laughs> as we say here in Wales. Um, and it's a family affair. My, my sister's involved in it too, as is my grandmother, who's one of the founding members. It's been going uh, a long time now. And of course, like all uh, like many uh, um, companies in the art sector particularly theatres we were forced to uh, stop all rehearsals for our production that was meant to take place last March that I was involved in private lives um, but 
we endured via Zoom, as many <laughs> companies have done. Um, and we've been keeping those Zoom meetings going since the lockdown began. They, you know, we've got a lot of um, more senior members of our group who have, have transferred over to Zoom and have really enjoyed staying connected. And I've got to admit, I, I, I felt the same, being able to stay connected to my lovely Liz Vane players. Um, and we have, uh, we've got our, our inaugural radio play that's actually taking place tonight. So I'm, we're recording this on Thursday the 17th of December um, and tonight at 8pm we are live broadcasting uh, our production of or our adaptation of A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. Um, so I first of all wanted to plug that and to say that we're doing it to raise money for Cardiff Food Bank. Um, so if you, uh, you'll be able to access it now. So obviously after the event, if you fancy having a listen, it's about 40 minutes long. It's um, an ad- adaptation done by one of our, one of our, our players, John Barnes. Um, and yeah, you'll, you'll hear me um, along with many other family members and my fellow players uh, bring that to life for you. And of course, A Christmas Carol um, is a really kind of key work that that people turn to at Christmas um, for for many reasons there are lots of different versions of it but I've got the original here um, and it's a lovely cloth bound penguin classic that I've got to say I am really digging right now um, the cover is the artwork of Coralie Bickford Smith who I follow on Instagram and for those of you who really love beautiful books um, and are quite sort of uh, funny about the, the the additions that you like to have I've got to say, Coralie Bickford Smith's um, beautiful cloth-bound editions of classics are just stunning things. So I've got this in my hands right now. And I thought that I might just read you a tiny little extract, um, the the very familiar and well-known extract um, from the end of A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. Scrooge was better than his word. He did it all and infinitely more. And to Tiny Tim, who did not die spoiler he was a second father he became as good a friend as good a master and as good a man as the good old city knew or any other good old city town or borough in the good old world some people laughed to see the alteration in him but he let them laugh and little heeded them for he was wise enough to know that nothing ever happened on this globe for good at which some people did not have their their fill of laughter in the outset His own heart laughed, and that was quite enough for him. He had no further intercourse with spirits, but lived upon the total abstinence principle ever afterwards. And it was always said of him that he knew how to keep Christmas well, if any man alive possessed the knowledge. May that be truly said of us all, and sorry, may that be truly said of us and all of us. And so, as Tiny Tim observed, God bless us, every one. How very festive and how much I'm about to ruin. <laughs> I have no idea what Tom is about to no. say, but he has given me a warning. Yeah, that the might, this might, this episode might descend into violence shortly. Oh God. <laughs> that was wonderful. And this is going to be not so wonderful. I, I just wanted to uh, end with something a little bit, I suppose it's a little bit COVID related, a little bit teaching related. Um, if we cast our minds back to, well, those of us who, who work here in, in the, Uh, School of Education and Social Policy at Cardiff Met, we had a staff meeting uh, in which I remember I I was saying that as teachers, you know, we're all having to come to grips with technology and teaching using technology. 
And some of us are really confident at it. Some of us are less confident at it. And I, I remember being quite worried at the time that, that morale amongst teachers was going to be a big kind of issue that anyone who's kind of lacking confidence in technology may start to lose confidence in their teaching skills. And, you know, we all need to be at pains to, to recognise that we're all good teachers. Um, you can be good at technology, but if you're not a good teacher, you know, you're not, not going to do very well. Now, Actually, over here, as in many educational institutions, we've, we've done pretty well, I think, actually, to be fair, with our delivery of programmes remotely and sort of um, in, in a blended way. We have produced a ridiculous amount of material this term. I mean, we have spent so much time in front of microphones and cameras. Thank goodness for the PGC podcast, soon to be uh, changing its name. Because all of our kind of inhibitions around a microphone and a camera were long beaten out of us, weren't they, years ago? Um, <laughs> all, the, all the really horrendously painful recording experiences that took nine billion takes are all long in the past. And when we were kind of up against it in COVID land and needed to generate like, you know, entire lectures in a single take and things like that, we, we can do it because we're, we're you know... We're fairly comfortable in front of cameras and microphones now. And it did strike me that, you know, some of our colleagues, uh, some of the students who are having to get to grips with them, we're just looking, going, how can they do that? We're always seeing those two on screen, you know, our faces always on a screen. They're <laughs> sick of the sight of us, sick of the sound of our voices. How is it they can make all this stuff? And it takes me like a billion goes to record even a tiny bit of a lecture, all that kind of thing. So as a public service and as a, a little present to all of our friends, I thought I'd gather one or two of our less impressive moments <laughs> from when we were recording lectures. <laughs> in the last three months and just play them out so that you can see that actually the only reason is that we both know our way around an editor oh my God. <laughs> so as emma disappears into a heap under her desk uh, i hope you enjoy the things you're about to hear hello everyone it's emma and tom from the clinical practice work stream so that's the little working party here that that works on that you said I was good, you jinxed me. Happens to the best of us. <laughs> Happens to me a lot. Yeah, it's fine, just yeah. Scoop it I've just got the good time big picture Boris Johnson style waffling. You've got the actual nuts and bolts. Right. Oh God, is that maybe Dominic Cummins? Because he was the. Like... <laughs> maybe, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're the terrifying one that's just everyone's frightened of you. All right, here we go then. Have endeavoured to empower our student teachers to contribute to curriculum reform within a research-informed clinical practice model of initial teacher education. Try saying that fast three times after a pint. <laughs> Just propped up on the chair. I just realised how beautifully I did that, and then yeah. somebody in my head just went, <laughs> You're about to crash a burn. <laughs> abort, abort. <laughs> Sorry. That's fine, that was good. I didn't like the way I started it. All right. So that's a short. <laughs> how I'm Sissel. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Now that we've heard from our Minister for Education, Kirsty Williams, um, I, Emma Thayer, and my colleague... <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> that was nice. I like that. <laughs> I have a thing, I have a proclamation I wish to pronounce. Pay attention. I shall have you taken to the tower. <laughs> oh. The first of my name. Oh. That was wonderful, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, classic, classic. Lovely. <laughs> So there we go. And I will be perfectly honest, there, there would have been more of me, but I, my language when I go wrong in these things is absolutely shocking. So I had to bin some really quite good ones because I was a naughty boy. Oh, I was thinking the same thing. You must have been lacking on content for me because I do throw out quite a, a few expletives. Oh, there's then. some wonderful videos sitting in the in the vaults um, ready there. But yeah, I just thought I'd do a bit of a lighthearted thing just to go, just to show that no matter how professional we might look sometimes when we're putting various video things out, actually we go wrong quite a lot oh so often I feel for you Tom Tom deserves a massive medal <laughs> he deserves an MBE for well, the amount of editing, editing he's had to do we'll have to see what we can do because there's actually that's a in video form and, and the look on my face when you say try saying that three times after a point is absolutely classic <laughs> the look of absolute like what is happening so I don't know what we're going to do with that video. We'll see if we can uh, distribute it to the deserving poor or something. Oh, we definitely need some bloopers, don't we? A bloopers reel. <laughs> oh, listen, everyone, we hope that you are having a very well-deserved break. We hope that that wasn't the ramblings of two mad people who've been chained to their desks producing multiple <laughs> yeah. reels of footage for the last year. Yeah, and uh, as, I, as I gently prise Emma's hands from around my neck for including that in the final <laughs> part of the podcast we would like to wish you all a very very happy christmas um i hope you're having a break particularly if you're involved in the education world because you're probably as tired as we are have a break yes you must definitely do that and we'll be back with our new regeneration yes. uh, <laughs> in january yes we're off for a long lie down in a darkened room and uh, we'll be back in january see you soon take care all bye That was Emma and Tom's Christmas podcast, presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. This episode was also brought to you by the Recovery Curriculum by Professor Barry Carpenter, the British Medical Journal, Window Swap, Corduroy by Adrian Bell, the Dolly Parton's America podcast, Rate My Skype Room on Twitter, Succession, Normal People and the Queen's Gambit on Emma's telly, the Choir of St Mary's Church in Chepstow in 1986, Bland Doodles on Instagram and Facebook, Cameron Stewart, the controversial voice of Fireman Sam, A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens, and our own rank incompetence in front of a camera. We'll be back freshly rebranded in the new year. See you then, and Merry Christmas. <laughs>